I wonder if you knew, if you really knew, you only had a few days left to live, how would you use your words specifically? Not just how you'd spend your time, but how would you use your words if you knew you only had a few days left on earth? Maybe for some of us, there's, a, there's somebody, we really want to let them know what's been on our mind, and you know, if I only had a couple days left, I'd, I'd let them know. But my guess is um, that maybe there's somebody that you've held on to uh, anger, and you want to seek forgiveness. Or maybe you have regrets, and you want to ask for forgiveness. And here, as time gets short, you'd finally have the courage to, to do that. Certainly, for the people that we love the most, we'd want them to know how we really feel about them in our final days, right? But either way, whatever's most important, that's what we would focus on. We wouldn't probably waste a whole lot of words if we only had a few days left to live. We all, as, we are, as we're here at the end of John chapter 12, Jesus is right now wrapping up his public ministry. They're, they're, from now on out, once we get to chapter 13, there are no more crowds of people. Everything else is going to be done in private with his disciples until he goes to the cross. And so here at the end of John chapter 12, this is Jesus' final public address in the Gospel of John. And so we might wonder how important, how essential these words are going to be. Is Jesus going to clarify? Is Jesus going to leave the crowd with the most important things that he would want them to know before his uh, passion, before his suffering and departure? Well, the obvious answer is yes. What we're going to see today is of the utmost importance. And y'all, this is one of those situations where I, I, a year ago I sat down and mapped out how we would preach through the Gospel of John. I have no idea what I was thinking trying to bite off such a massive chunk of Scripture in one Sunday. I did it to poor Evan last week and left town. He had way too much to, to preach through. He did great. But I've got the same problem today. We're going to preach through almost 25 verses. There's so much in here. It's going to be hard to really cover it well. And so I'm going to be very Baptist this morning. I'm going to give us three P words that are going to help guide us as we go. Three words that start with P that I hope will help us to kind of categorize the three sections of this scripture. We have first the person, the person of Jesus. Then we have a problem. Then we have a promise. Person, problem, and promise, okay? So look with me at John chapter 12, verse 27. This first paragraph, the person of Jesus, as he speaks these words. This is Jesus speaking in verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, 
we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. A big paragraph, right? But we, we see that the, at the outset, Jesus, in his last public address, gets very personal and very serious about the days to come, about his impending death for certain. We're just a few days away from the cross at this point, and Jesus says it aloud for all to hear. My soul has become troubled. What we don't see in John, but we see in the other Gospels, Jesus agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke tells us he sweats drops of blood. That's how great the agony of his soul and body was at the prospect of bearing the sins of the world on the cross. Too much for any human being to handle, almost too much for Jesus to handle. Because he was a man, truly a man, although he was also God. He's agonizing here. And yet we don't see any cowardice on his part, right? We see what he says next. Even though he's troubled, he says, should I ask the Father to save me from this hour? It's for this very purpose that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So in other words, the, the agony of the cross is the express reason that Jesus came to earth to begin with. He came to lay down His life for sinners and through His sacrifice to bring eternal glory to the Father. Not just to save humans, but to glorify God. And to that statement, Father, glorify Your name, the Father speaks in return. This happens periodically. It happened at Jesus' baptism. It happened at the transfiguration. And now here again, God speaks I have glorified it and will glorify it again. That, which is to say, God has been supremely glorified already in the life and the ministry of Jesus, and he will be glorified for certain in the death of Jesus. Now, for the crowd, that raises an important question, and maybe for us too. Okay, wait a minute. What's glorious, what's glorifying about death? The shameful unjust murder of the Son of God on the cross, how in the world is that going to glorify God? Well, Jesus actually gives us a few pointers here to how God is glorified at the cross. You see it in verse 31. Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So through the cross, God is going to reveal his judgment upon sin and also judgment upon Satan. All of that takes place at the cross. Jesus, through his death, is going to disarm and ultimately destroy the powers of darkness. We, we read that from Hebrews a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus destroys the works of the devil through his own death. And when he is lifted up from the cross, Jesus says he will draw all men to himself. Y'all, all men without distinction. 
And as we prayed earlier for the nations, we take this to heart, I hope, how wonderful this good news is that both Jews and Gentiles, both men and women, black and white, rich and poor, Haitians and Americans, and everywhere else that you can name, through the cross of Christ, all who believe will be saved. It's the cross, Jesus on the cross, that draws sinners to salvation. He could accomplish our salvation no other way. If He is lifted up, we are drawn in. And y'all, that's echoed in verse 36. When Jesus says, while you have the light, capital L, that's Him, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. The crowd, we, we saw this, the crowd is miffed at the thought that the Messiah, that is the great deliverer that God would send to His people Israel, the Messiah will be eternal forever. The Messiah will be a conqueror, that was their perception, not a martyr. They had no context for that. There's no way God's anointed Savior is going to enter into the world and die. What do you mean you're going to be lifted up? Who are you talking about? But see, this is their misunderstanding at play. They don't understand who Jesus is or why he came. It's only through his death that people can be freed from condemnation and be reconciled to God. And so the command here from Jesus is, believe in the light. Trust in Christ so that you may become children of light. You know, that, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not a hope for this life only, but hope for the life to come. It's an eternal life that God grants us. It begins in the here and now. It shapes everything about us, yes, but it doesn't end here. What good would it have done for Israel if Jesus had conquered Rome? Perhaps a temporary, earthly good only. He came to conquer sin and death. And so they need to believe in Him, in the light of Christ. Uh, Peter says it like this later on in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's our only hope. His light. And so y'all, this is the person. That first P. The person of Jesus. You notice right here in His final address, He gives us no list of do's and don'ts. He simply calls us to himself because that is our true hope. Believe in me. Come to me to receive life. That's the person of Christ. In him we trust and are saved. But right on the heels of that revelation of Christ, we have a problem. And the problem is not hard to see. We see it in the middle of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw Jesus' glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Jesus. 
But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Sandwiched in between the words of Jesus, we have John giving us an extended commentary on the unbelief of the people, of the crowd. Why is it that people didn't believe in Jesus? And it's meant to strike us as odd and frankly a little irrational when we read it. We see it in verse 37. Though Jesus had performed so many signs among them, yet they were not believing in him. And so the question is, why not? Did Jesus not do enough? Most certainly he did enough. He raised the dead most recently. What more could he have done? Was Jesus not convincing enough? Were his words not clear enough? And the answer is no. It was not of any fault on Jesus' part. John, through the Holy Spirit, gives the answer to why the crowd would not believe. And he actually stretches back 700 years to the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes first from Isaiah 53, where Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report or our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That is Isaiah 53. That's the greatest prophetic chapter in the Bible concerning Jesus. Isaiah 53, I'd encourage you to read it on your own. It's absolutely stunning to read. But if you read it, we we come to recognize that the glory of the coming Messiah, Jesus, um, from from our vantage point, does not appear all that glorious. In fact, it's a a very strange uh, description. So, So one of the things Isaiah says in that great chapter about the Messiah, about Jesus, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. That's not what we would expect to read about the Savior. But the the very fact that Jesus was hated and rejected by his own people was not a surprise to God. It was prophesied well in advance. And so we can't say, well, Jesus could have, you know, he he could have softened his message, or he could have... Why didn't he perform more miracles when he had the chance? We, we, we could ask questions like that. And all of those points are moot to the conversation here. Because the real question is not that somehow God miscalculated what the people would respond to and how they would receive Christ. No, this is a plan and a prophecy that Jesus would be treated this way. And John digs even deeper by going back to Isaiah chapter 6. You see it in verse 39. For this reason, they, the crowds, could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. Now, that's a much more confusing scripture. And I want to encourage us. We don't read this as if to say that these people wanted to believe in Jesus, but God prevented them. He wouldn't let them. No, this is a, some, some commentators will call this a judicial hardening. God handing over and hardening people who were already turned against him and his glory. And y'all, you know, it's, it's really interesting when we think about these words from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is the great um, commissioning where God takes Isaiah and sends him as a prophet to the people. 
And so when God calls Isaiah as a prophet to Israel, before his ministry even begins, God tells him up front, they will not listen to you. They will not receive you. They will not respond positively. In fact, they're going to hate you for speaking my truth. Because these people have set their hearts against the glory of God. And so when the glory of God is revealed through His prophetic message, it will be received with hardness and coldness and rejection at every turn, both against the glory of God and the messenger of God, in this case Isaiah, and one day they'll even set their hearts against the Savior of the world, God's own Son, when He's sent to us. This is not a surprise. In fact, this is, in, in, in some very real, deep, and, and wonderful sense, this is how God planned to bring His glory and His grace into the world. And y'all, we're, we're wading into deep water here, and we don't have enough time to parse it all out. But John is saying, in the case of these people, these kinsmen, these are, these are Jewish people, of all the people that we think would receive Jesus most gladly, in some sense, they wouldn't, and in some sense, they couldn't. They were deadened. They were blinded to the glory of God, and therefore, they rejected Christ when he came. Jesus knew they would. Jesus, John 6 tells us Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe. It's not a surprise to him. He didn't rally his disciples and say, okay, plan B. What can I say to get a more favorable response? He never did that. He knew it was to come. And that was part of his purpose. So it's a problem. And you know, it's, it's interesting here. We get a glimmer of hope in verse 42. But we also get a deeper sense of the problem there too. Look in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so, again, commentators kind of go back and forth on this as to whether the faith, the belief in verse 42, are these men genuine in their belief? Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to say. It's possible that they, that they are. But John is pointing us to a defect that's meant to grab our attention there. These men believed only in secret for fear of the Pharisees for fear of being put out of the synagogue. So fear is motivating their privacy, their unwillingness to confess Christ. But then John says there's a deeper motivation beyond their fear. He says because they loved the approval or the praise, the glory of men rather than the approval of God. And y'all, that's the heart of the issue. Not just for those men in particular, but for all men and women, in my opinion. I would go so far as to say that this is pretty much the root of every sin to begin with. To love the glory of man rather than the glory of God. And really, if we were to dig deep enough into any sin in your life or in mine, great or small, that would be probably the ground level motivation of the heart. That I love, I prefer the glory of man, my own glory, the approval of others, the, the fleeting pleasures of this life for my enjoyment, whatever it is to my glory, I prefer it and choose it over the glory of God. And so, y'all, this is something Jesus has already harped on in this gospel. Back in John 5, he's speaking to the same crowds of people 
And he asked them this rhetorical question. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? And so when, when Isaiah, 700 years prior, is speaking this prophetic word from God about Jesus, he was despised and forsaken of men. Why? How could a person so utterly wonderful, there's never been anybody like him, how could he be so despised and pushed aside? Well, this is part of God's plan and purpose. This is what actually Isaiah says in, in chapter 53. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Back in the 70s, there was this very popular picture of Jesus, picture, painting of Jesus. It was, it was in every church. You've probably seen it. He was a very handsome dude in that picture. I mean, if you've seen the picture, it's unbelievable. The Bible says no. We don't know what he looked like, but he, he couldn't have been handsome. There was nothing about him that we were attracted to him. There was nothing about him that we would look upon him in a, in a human way that he gives glory to man. No, God chose to display his glory by sending his son as a servant, as a lowly person, as an un, in some sense unattractive to our eyes and our desires. And then sending him into the world, he put him on a cross. Y'all, that is a message that is offensive to the glory of man. It's not attractive to us. And so we see in John 12, no matter what Jesus said, no matter what he did, a great many people simply would not receive him. And y'all, it would be one thing for them to be indifferent, to turn their backs and go another direction, but beyond simply not receiving Jesus, they despised him and they put him to death. Now that's, a, that's an insurmountable problem, seemingly, right? Unbelief, animosity, murder, but look at how the chapter ends. There's three Ps, remember? There's person, there's problem, and then there's a glorious promise. One final thing Jesus desires to say. Verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, or me only, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Y'all, it's always important for us to recognize Jesus' greatest enemies were convinced that they were rejecting him in service to God. These are not atheists. These are not people who deny God. They think they're serving God. These are the most religious people of Jesus' day. 
They think they are God's spokesmen. They are God's gatekeepers. And so by getting rid of Jesus, they're doing everyone a favor. They're doing God a favor by getting rid of this blasphemous man. They think they know God when in reality their actions and their attitudes reveal that they don't. And that was Jesus' greatest twist of the knife. You don't really know the Father. He said it multiple times. And yet right in the midst of all this, Jesus makes one final appeal to something he's already said numerous times in the Gospel of John. He says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. If you think you know and love God, then you will know and love and receive me because I am the Son of God. Therefore, all of my works are done in the power of God and for the glory of God, and all my words are the, wor- the very words of God the Father. And so if you reject me, you're rejecting Him. And in the end, if you reject Him and His words, then you will stand under His judgment. Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a promise, and it's a harsh promise. But it's not the promise I want to focus on most. Because even in the midst of this statement of, of judgment, Jesus is not seeking condemnation for the people. He's not speaking words of condemnation. He says that, that these are words of salvation. What the Father speaks through me are eternal life kind of words here, right? And so that's the great promise. If you look back at verse 46, hone in on this with me. Jesus says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. I have come as light into the world. Everyone who believes in me will no longer remain in darkness. Elsewhere, Jesus says, but will have the light of life. That's what we receive in him. And y'all, my prayer for me, for us, as we round the corner here, is that we really would take this to heart. It's not, I don't have to preach to you that there's a lot of darkness in this world. It's abundantly obvious. Turn on the television or just go live. Go work. Go, go meet people, right? There's, a, there's plenty of sin and evil to go around in the world. Look at politics. You, any, any realm of reality that we look into, we're going to see darkness there. But y'all, Jesus right here is not talking about the darkness out there. Jesus is talking about the darkness in here. The stuff that I'm less willing to acknowledge and more likely to suppress or even deny. See, here's, this is the uncomfortable truth of the gospel. Gospel means good news, but to the, get to the good news, to, to see the good news for really how good it is, we've got to acknowledge the bad news about us, that we, you and I, left to ourselves, live in the darkness of our own sin. We are alienated from God. We are lost. And therefore, we are without hope in the world. And dig deeply enough into your heart, you shouldn't have to dig long, to know that we have all preferred the glory of man rather than the glory of God. Any honest person knows it's true. And y'all, this is a, there's a depth of darkness that we find ourselves in that we cannot climb our way out of. No, no amount of church attendance or financial giving to charity or good works or even good intentions can somehow tip the scales in our favor. We will remain in darkness, Jesus says, unless God intervenes. And that's the good news. 
that into the deepest darkness, Jesus Christ has entered for our sake. Light has come into the world, John chapter 1 tells us. Light has entered into the darkness, and the darkness could not overpower it. And so when Jesus says, I have come as light, capital L, He speaks of Himself. He's not shining a light in our direction. He is the light. I've come as light into the world. And therefore, everyone who trusts in Me will not remain in their darkness. Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ will himself or herself have the light of life because he is the person of God come to give it. Y'all, as we we close, come back with me to these three Ps one more time. The person, the problem, the promise. These three work in concert together, maybe more than we realize. We see the person of Jesus because Jesus is the very person of God, God who became flesh and dwelt among us. That means that He alone can be the light with a capital L. Nobody else can make that statement about themselves. And therefore, He alone can offer salvation to sinners who live in darkness. Jesus alone can draw people to Himself through His sacrificial death on the cross. In a very strange way, that actually gives light and hope even in the face of the great problem that we read about today. The problem of those who rejected Jesus, because y'all, I mean, just think about it. It's because Jesus was despised and forsaken of men that he was nailed to a cross. They They didn't nail him to a cross for any lesser reason. There was no accident here. They hated him. They rejected him and everything that he was about. And it's because they rejected him and nailed him to a cross that he was able to bear our sins in his own body there. So that in God's great providence, the problem of rejection is what gives rise to our Savior on the cross. That the rejection of Jesus Christ was part of God's plan and prophecy to bring grace to the world, to all who would believe. The person, through the problem, brings the promise. And y'all, this is, this is how we close. When Jesus is about to exit stage, no longer in public ministry, speaking to the crowds, what's he going to say as his final word? He makes it abundantly clear. He is the Son of God who speaks the words of God and does the great works of God for the glory of God. And everyone who looks upon Him, everyone who trusts in His grace to save, receives light and life that He alone can give. And so y'all, as we, as we close, I, I want to appeal to you, to, you, to us, uh, the same way that Jesus did. And my appeal is this, to echo His words, Don't live one more minute in the dark. Receive the light of Jesus. Trust Him. Turn to Him to receive as a free gift. No earning involved. No showing something for yourself to get through the door. 
a free gift, the forgiveness of all your sin, reconciliation with God, no longer living in the dark and far from God, but brought near by the blood of Christ. We are able, by faith, to receive life in place of death, hope in place of despair, and light in place of darkness. A light so great that it expels the darkness. I pray for you what I pray for me, that Jesus Christ, even right now, would draw us to himself through his great love with which he loved us. A love so great that he would spread out his arms to be nailed down, that we might have life forever through his death. Let's pray. Father, will you give us some focus this morning? We've looked at a lot of scripture and a lot of very deep things. I pray, Father, that you will help us to see, uh, even if we have questions or confusion, things that we feel like we missed or skipped, things I didn't communicate very well, whatever it may be. Father, do us this one wonderful grace. Let us see Jesus. Show us your son, Jesus, the light of the world. And show us, Father, a, a, a picture of Jesus, unlike the one that used to hang on our church walls, perhaps. A lowly servant, unattractive to our eyes, offensive to the glory of man, despised and forsaken. All part of your divine plan. You did not send Jesus into the world to get a warm reception. You sent him to lay down his life for us. And so, Lord, even as we, I, I, I pray we recognize that the truth of our own hearts we have all loved the glory of man rather than the glory of God. That, Father, in your grace, you will hold no sin against us forevermore if we have trusted in your Son, Jesus, to cancel our debt and to give us life. There are no words for such a gift. Help us to see him and to cherish him. And Lord, if there's, if there's anything in us, even right now, that we simply will not confess you before others, we're, we're afraid. We're afraid of losing reputation, of losing face. We're afraid of what people might think or say of us. We love the approval of men too much to risk it. Lord, I pray for those of us who know you that we would be so filled with gratitude for grace, that we would be so filled with, with the, the glorious, awesome love and power of our Savior, that our love for him will burst forth, that we would live with the utmost confidence and joy 
in all that we do that Christ would shine forth. We have nothing to fear because we walk in the light. Father, what a gift this is. Thank you, Lord, that every single week we get to proclaim this truth. And I pray that we love to stand in this light, the light of Christ. Let it be that we stand in it and that we also walk in it. Let all that we do um, be to your glory today. In your son's wonderful name, amen.